0: Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's weekly podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Daniel Speckhard, who was the U.S. ambassador to Belarus in 1997 to 2000, and is now president and CEO of Chorus International, a global development and humanitarian assistance organization that has been involved with aid efforts in Ukraine since shortly after the start of Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Among other roles, uh, he has also been US ambassador to Greece and deputy assistant secretary general of NATO for political affairs. And uh, before uh, he was the envoy to Belarus, he was the US State Department's ambassador at large for the newly independent states. Uh, for, from 1993 to 1997, so really a wealth of experience um, in the region. Ambassador Speckard, thanks very much for, for joining me today.
1: Thank you, uh, Steve. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you here today.
0: All right. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, now, I'm going to try to keep my questions fairly short and straightforward. Uh, first, I'd like to ask um, about Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement publicized by the Kremlin over the weekend, uh, that Russia will be able to position tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus by early summer of this year, uh, in about three months. Now, I believe he did not quite state that Russia would actually put these tactical weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, there right away. But among other things, Putin said that uh, 10 Belarusian warplanes have already been retrofitted, to carry nuclear, uh, Russian nuclear weapons, and that a storage facility for the warheads would be ready by July 1st. And he said these weapons, um, when they're in Belarus, would remain under Russian control. Now, my first question is, basically, what is behind this move or this statement? Um, is it mostly meant to frighten Ukraine and the West, to kind of raise the stakes in the war in Ukraine? And, and does it increase uh, dangers uh, or is it mainly kind of saber- rattling uh, propaganda um, related question is it in terms of Belarus is it partly intended to bind Belarus and Alexander Lukashenko closer to Russia apologies uh, maybe that's more than one question but I would welcome your thoughts uh, ambassador Speckhart.
1: Well, uh, good question. And I think the rule number one for any Russian leader is to look tough. So I think the starting point for this is that uh, Russia is on its back foot in the war in Ukraine. uh, And in response to this recent announcement by the UK that they're going to be giving armor-piercing ammunition uh, to Ukraine, Uh, Russia needs to look like they're being tough and responding in kind. uh, And I think this was the next thing way to raise the stakes here. I think first and foremost, though, it's for their domestic audience, right, this looking tough part. Uh, But it's also a reminder to the West to not get complacent. You know, they are on their back foot. Their conventional forces have been seriously deteriorated and weakened as a result of this war. Uh, and they don't have a lot to bring to the to the military security situation right now as it relates to Europe. Uh, and so reminding everybody, hey, we're a nuclear power, is a way to kind of try to rebalance what feels like uh, an out-of-balance uh, security situation in Europe right now for Russia. As to the question of integration with Belarus, um, it will certainly have impact on the further subjugating of the country to the idea of a greater Russia uh, but I don't think that's the reason it's happening now. Uh, what you do notice is that the response of Belarus, I thought, was interesting, this was saying that they were going to be forced to accept uh, nuclear weapons on their territory. You know, that's not language that you normally use <laughs> in the context of this uh, strong, uh, uh, normally positive relationship between the two countries. So it's certainly something that's not in Belarus that they're looking forward to, excited about the population as once. Um, But it's something that they're going to be forced to do. And then they blame the West in those responses for the West's provocative actions in, in Ukraine. I think where it's headed towards is a permanent Russian base uh, as the first step towards this reintegration into a greater Russia uh, by uh, Moscow. And that's going to take some time. But I think once that's, that's the dangerous part of this step. It's the most dangerous, less for Europe, the rest of Europe, because these nuclear weapon they have so many nuclear weapons already. The threat there of nuclear um, war is always overhanging all of us because of this. But it's more of the threat uh, and danger to Belarus and its sovereignty. And this is likely going to be a step that's going to be hard to uh, to reverse
0: i just wanted to follow up um ambassador Beckard, uh, one thing you mentioned was that uh this this uh is an effort by putin to look tough including uh in front of the russian audience and he's equating he's kind of equating this uh the the uh use or deployment of nuclear tactical nuclear weapons in belarus with the British uh, plan to provide Ukraine with um, armor-piercing weapons that include uh, depleted uranium, but so so Putin's kind of casting this as as a nuclear response to to a nuclear uh, step, but in fact that's that's actually false. Correct because. The depleted uranium weapons are not actually nuclear
1: weapons. Yeah, I mean, this is actually, they know that. This is actually ridiculous. You know, uh, uh, the depleted uranium has less uh, radioactive content than natural uranium that's dug out of the ground. It is used in weapons to make them much more effective in terms of piercing armor. Or to use tanks to protect in terms of armor, but this is kind of a you know the issue of you know can you knock a tank out on the battlefield versus tactical nuclear weapons, which I'm sure our audience knows what can do in terms of uh, the escalation of war and the damages to civilian populations. So it's it's uh, completely a different story, but they're t- taking advantage of that to try to you know try to confuse people and look tough and try to blame the West you know, for the escalation.
0: Right. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, and I guess another follow up. This you, you might get into this when I ask the, the subsequent question. But um, you mentioned uh, the idea that this is kind of uh, really has has uh, repercussions for for Belarus in terms of being subjugated further, uh, drawn further, drawn closer to Ru- to Russia. Um, you know, with with potentially a you know a permanent base. Um, and these are things that that Russia has been trying to. Trying to get for for quite a while, as as far as I understand, um, I guess. The, so so that so this additional question would be, kind of, um, how uh, how much does the does Belarus's future kind of depend on uh, the outcome of the war in in Ukraine? Well,
1: that's a great question. Steve, that is very closely tied to the outcome in Ukraine. I mean, while um, you know, since I was ambassador there in 1999, this issue of how you reintegrate Russia into a greater Russian Federation and uh, Russian Empire has been on the table. And in fact, in 1999, Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus signed a you know a cooperation union agreement. That actually, called it a union, you know, for the Commonwealth of Independent States there. And so they've been working on this for twenty some years. So Plukushenko has actually been fairly deft at kind of parrying uh the the advances of Russia to try to further deepen this. Uh, and then on the other hand, Russia hasn't had to hurry because Belarus wasn't going anywhere because they have so mismanaged relationships with the West that they could never really get any traction on trying to improve their tries and have a kind of a balanced uh, foreign policy. So nobody's been in a hurry. But now the calculus is different because if Ukraine, if Russia is unsuccessful in reintegrating Ukraine into its orbit, Um, there's going to be enormous pressure to make some progress somewhere else. So I would say Belarus would be in sight uh, of Russia to say we need to now formalize this uh, relationship where Belarus now becomes a much more integrated part of greater Russia. And so that reunification or reunion or something like that language would be used to show that while Ukraine still struggles, look at what President Putin has been able to accomplish in creating uh, the great power that she wants to be and re expanding its uh, uh, Soviet space that it had in the past in the sense of re, re, reintegrating that in a way. They feel very much, most Russians feel that, you know, it was a fluke and an accident that these countries became independent and that it was actually, you know, a plot by the West and NATO and others that forced the breakup of the Soviet Union. And it was a mistake, right? So it's not just Putin, it's a, probably a majority of the Russians which would like to see that happen. And that, of course, makes it very dangerous for Belarus.
0: And of course, this is all happening, you know, a, a couple of years after um, the big upheaval in Belarus, in which um, there were huge protests uh, after Lukashenko claimed victory, landslide victory, uh, in an election in August 2020. That uh, millions of voters, I think, thought, you know, believed that he he stole through fraud. Um, so and you have a, a huge crackdown on on Belarusians on any pretty much uh anyone um opposing the view that Lukashenko won um and so you have that situation with a lot of Belarusians having fled the country others others in jail um and and then the war you know then Russia invaded Ukraine um, um but so i have a, a i guess an, another question that that's related to to the last one um uh but it's about uh, belarus's role in the war uh, more broadly uh now the belarusian state uh, under Lukashenko has provided substantial support for russia's invasion of ukraine among other things some of the forces that drove toward kiev um, unsuccessfully in the first days of the invasion uh, in february and march 2022 uh, some of those crossed into ukraine from belarus heading south um, and, and Kiev is, is fairly close to the northern border, the border with Belarus. But uh, you know those Russian forces didn't make it, and that was a, a big, um, uh, huge early setback. Um, you know Putin, widely believed to have uh, expected and hoped that uh, essentially could bring Ukraine to heel within within a few days. Um, or a few weeks at most Um, but but so far despite that or or there's been there's been that support from Belarus but Lukashenko has not sent Belarusian forces to fight alongside Russian troops in Ukraine do you think that may change uh, Ambassador Speckard, or is it something that's out of the question?
1: Well, I don't think it's out of the question. Uh, I think they, uh, you know, there probably have already been a fair number of Belarusian military uh, personnel that have been borrowed by Russia, the ones that they need, or special capabilities, or others, and are already working to support the Russian military in its fight in Ukraine. Um, so I think they're probably already using many of the skilled uh, capabilities that they can get their hands on, and it's just kind of more hidden, as Russia is known to do in the past. But in terms of a greater expansion to bring the Belarusian military into this context, my guess is that it's likely to be avoided unless the situation gets even much worse for Russia, and that is because I think the strategic calculation, probably for certainly for belarus but also for russia is not to bring belarus into the, the armed conflict because there's this kind of uh, unwritten uh, code here that the west as they provide weapons to ukraine is saying to ukraine you cannot use any of those for uh attacks on russian soil and now we know there's been a few ammunition dumps that have been attacked in russia and other kinds of things For the most part, Ukraine has been very careful not to expand the war into any Russian territory, right? Um, That's probably not going to be the same for Belarus, right? Uh, If Belarus were to engage as a military party into the conflict... Um, then Belarus has to defend a a thousand kilometer border and it's north and it's not prepared to be able to do that, right? And you could really complicate the battlefield as a result of that and Belarus could start losing part of its territory if there were uh, uh, counter-offensives in a war that included Belarus. So I think for now the Russians probably have calculated it's much simpler to keep it all focused on inside Ukraine and have kind of a Symmetry and a protection for Russian territory that they lose if Belarus got into the war.
0: Okay, that, that's that's very helpful. Um, uh, yeah, I just wondered, sort of a follow up on that: to what degree? I mean, especially after after the um, the protests and, and crackdown or continuing crackdown in in Belarus. Um, I, it always struck me, um, and and including, I think the time that you were, that you were in in Belarus as U S ambassador, um, that part of the secret to, or, or one of the biggest ingredients in what popularity Lukashenko had was, um, as there were, as Russia was fighting, um, you know, wars in Chechnya in, in part of Russia, but, um, was sending uh, Russian soldiers to fight and die in Chechnya. Um, Lukashenko was seen, I think, in Belarus and also by you know by some in Russia as kind of well, at least he's not sending um, sending their boys or our boys um, to fight, and at least you know they we we have peace. I think was the view of of, of some Belarusians. So what? Uh, but after all the after all the upheaval, what is the is that still a factor in, in like? Um, I mean, you, you're, you're saying that essentially Russia probably at this point isn't, isn't wanting to get Belarus fully involved, but to what degree is, a fa- is that a factor, the kind of um, resistance or opposition um, in Belarus, among Belarusians, uh, to, to, having, yeah. to being involved in the war?
1: Yeah, for, for better or worse, you know, Lukashenko is still enormously popular in uh, in Belarus, and you know that's kind of quite a bit different than the Ukraine situation, where they had such a large democratic opposition force over the years, and then it actually became the government, and then when Russia started playing in those politics that created people in the street and stuff, the size of the kind of democratic forces in uh, Ukraine are so large, whereas in um belarus they're actually fairly small in terms of those who are really capable of uh you know kind of speaking up and speaking out uh against kind of the authoritarian structure of the government there um the rural people by most part support that strong leader that lukashenko is but at the same time there's little understanding there right and the understanding is that lukashenko understands his population, Belarusians aren't Russians, right? Belarusians don't want a great power. They don't even want to be part of a great power. They, the history of literally centuries of Belarus, and they have a saying: is essentially the saying is at least we have bread and salt, right? As long as you have bread and salt, and there's no war, you're okay. This is a country that's been uh, over history every fifty to hundred years. You know, march armies have marched through it all the way back from the times of Napoleon, right? They hate war. They want. They are peace loving people, and so Lukashenko knows this, right? And his tightrope here is how to appease Putin and show that he is a strong ally and supporter, because he really has nowhere else to go economically and security wise. But at the same time, his people also um, enjoy the fact that they're independent. close to Russia, but that they don't have to be part of this war. Um, And so he's reflecting that whether he'll be able to succeed in keeping uh, Belarus from getting more engaged. That's a big question. As you see with this week, with this issue of tactical weapons, you know, it really is the start to kind of pulling Belarus in a much more integrated way into the security uh, structure of Russia.
0: All right. Well, that I mean, I I think that's really a fascinating um and, and thorough analysis. Um I like the uh, description of Lukashenko on the tightrope, which which um, you know, it's always it's always been, you know, every 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 kind of trip, every meeting Lukashenko and Putin have, and, and they have quite a few, you know, there's always speculation, well, is this gonna be the time that <laughs> that kind of Russia really ropes uh, ropes Belarus in. Um but I, I guess we're seeing, you know, steps steps uh, toward that since since the uh, protests over the election and, and especially since um, the since the the Russian uh, full-scale invasion of Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I also think Steve it just it's so much harder now. You know, in the past Lukashenko constantly, every three to five years, tries to make a new balancing act with the West and the EU and he'll reach out and he just has been incapable of sustaining it because something interferes in his own mind and his own Uh, political calculation, usually the domestic political challenges he's facing with opposition, you know, and he'll bring down a commercial airliner, force a commercial airliner down or something, and it just throws everything off. I think what we see now with the war in Ukraine, it's going to be almost impossible for him to open doors, right, uh, there. He has done, as you saw, as he went to China, right, Um, in the context of reaching out to Chinese, following on the footsteps of uh, 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 Putin, uh, and I think that instead of right now trying to balance Russia off with the west he 's going to try to figure out how to get himself also connected to the Chinese to get a little balance there and a little more support, particularly on the economic side where they 're so dependent on uh, on russia
0: all right that 's another another interesting factor um, uh, China. Uh, all right. Thanks very much, uh, Ambassador Speckard. Now, we're getting a bit short on time, but uh, I'd like to take uh, questions uh, if there are any. So if, uh, you, can, you can raise your hand or send a DM um, if you have a question. We'll just give it a few moments here.
1: While we're waiting, Steve, also, you know, one of the things on these tactical nuclear weapons, again, you know, where you sit is uh, also how you view this, right? Sitting here in Washington, where I am, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, well, it's, you're dealing with a country that already has plenty of ballistic and intercontinental missiles and, uh, and a lot of nuclear firepower, you know, the fact that they move these nuclear tactical weapons this much closer and Belarus is worse for Belarus than it is for the West. But in fact, if you're sitting in Poland or Lithuania, Latvia or Estonia, you know, you're probably thinking differently about this. Right. As that threatening dynamic? And it's not just used as weapons in the context, but you got nuclear nuclear warheads sitting close to your uh, close to your border. Right. What if something goes wrong, even if it's in Belarus, the fallout of those kinds of things? can cross the border pretty quickly in the nuclear context. You know, this is not something like it is in the U.S. where we kind of just think about it as this you know, uh, hopefully never to be seen, kind of dynamic again in the world where they were living next to Chernobyl, right? Uh, and you have accidents related to nuclear power, uh, and it can have a fallout that has devastating consequences, going to last for thousands of years in parts of, of uh, Belarus and uh, Ukraine. So if you're close by, nuclear weapons getting any closer to you, uh, especially um, you know Soviet ones uh, that are. are russian now modern, or perhaps slightly more modern russian ones but still you know questionable um, um protective capacities you start to worry
0: right and i guess you know belarus to some degree is kind of a black hole in terms of you know from outside knowing what's going on uh there so yep. you know, I guess that would add an add an element, yeah,
1: yeah. and protection and the security, the services and the forces and stuff. As the whole, as you think about the whole military of of Russia being completely involved in this Ukrainian war, what does that tell you about kind of the security around their nuclear bases, the staffing of their nuclear forces, and other kinds of things? I'm sure, of course, they still have very capable uh, nuclear uh, competent soldiers, but you know, as they get squeezed. People, people should be nervous, right? And so, I just wanted to make sure I I was sympathetic to. If you're sitting in that neighborhood, uh, this may feel a lot different to you than if you're far far removed here in the United States.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, it's kind of ironic or or um, sad that these are these are questions that were supposed to have gone away. You know, as long as twenty five, thirty years ago when. You know, there were agreements to when all the uh nuclear weapons in the in the in the former Soviet Union were were, were moved to Russia or, or eliminated so and now now this is a new step by Putin. Um and I and I guess you know one of the main uh points or reasons behind it is is to is to uh try to coerce uh the West, including Eastern European countries, um, countries close to Belarus, uh, to to kind of pressure Ukraine to back down. But I guess so far we haven't really seen not really seen much of that. Um, there still seems to be quite quite a lot of unity. Um, you have in, a question there Europe. from uh,
1: Daniel Asher. If you wanted to go to that, Steve.
0: Yes, thanks very much. I will do that, uh, Daniel. Uh, go ahead. Uh, you can speak.
2: Hello, everyone. Mic check. Yes, we
0: can hear you well. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Um, Yes. Yes. Thank you for uh, uh, for this discussion. Um, Daniel, uh, you you mentioned that where you sit, whether you're in Washington or whether you are um, in Estonia or uh, any way close to Russia's borders would um, would impact how you see the situation and it seems that the um that the public support for ukraine and for joining nato and countries like um like uh finland is is really outstanding so um what this what i mean what this would suggest don't you think is that being acquainted with with Russian use of force and nuclear blackmail and the consequences of it seems to be uh, what the population there is um, is is actually acting from and standing up to Russia. So, so they're not swayed. So, is this not really just for the local um, the 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 Russian public? Uh, it, it's it it, sh- it cannot and is not and should not impact um, any anyone that uh, that would rather stand up to Russia. I, yeah. Is there any impact apart from from the play to the domestic audience? Well, I think you're right that
1: primarily it's the domestic audience, but uh, I think as a long-term observer of Russia, there's still in my mind, I don't have 100% certainty that Russia wouldn't use tactical nuclear weapons in the war if it got completely you know, you know so, so routed that it had lost essentially the war that they wouldn't just play the spoiler <laughs> in that territory. And that you know is unconscionable and unimaginable by us in the West, but... It still is something that creates a doubt in the mind of myself. And so I assume that as well as those people who are still in public policy and government positions in in Europe and the United States. And so that reminder just out there, Putin kind of threatening in this way that is not really appropriate for a world leader to be doing, keeps people on edge uh, and that being on edge keeps the calculation off. I think what you were suggesting, though, that I do think is right, is both this and the continued attacks on civilian infrastructure keep the West coalesced in this war supporting Ukraine. The reality is the Russians are the worst enemy. If they would just down, you know, turn the temperature down, soften everything, pull back on the war a little bit, hold their current spots, get it in kind of a stalemate approach, not push on Bakhmut, the West would start losing interest, not because they don't care, but because there's so many other issues going on. But the and nuclear stuff keeps the west uh and on this and that gives the populations support uh for the politicians that need to actually allocate the resources the funding and support to ukraine to make this uh, a fair fight
0: all right thanks very much ambassador um let's see if we have any other questions um Give it a few moments again. I think Daniel had a question. Uh, Okay, Uh, yes, go ahead.
2: Yes, thank you. Um, How does the threat of tactical nuclear weapons at the scale that they are at differ from uh, a large scale conventional attack, which we've already seen and other than the fact that it's a nuclear weapon and has political blowback, and how is it different from the the nuclear terroristic use of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant?
1: Yeah, Well, um, I think the connection to Zaporizhia is a good one. I don't think there's much different there. I think compared to conventional weapons, though, especially for people in this region who understand what the results of Chernobyl was and the large swaths of Belarus and Ukraine that are no longer able to be farmed, lived in, inhabited, you know, these are essentially, if you drive through these cities and towns and villages that were part of that, fall out, they're they're ghost towns, right? And so... The difference is after conventional war, people can rebuild and move back to their uh, towns of origin and stuff with tactical weapons you can. not And also, of course, there's the, you know, the devastation. You you can't be at all precise. And of course, Russia hasn't been being precise and they have been attacking uh, infrastructure, civilian infrastructure. But the, the ability to be uh, more careful on civilian casualties, much less in the tactical sense. So, uh, but you also highlighted, Danny, and I give you that as well. It's, the, it's also the psychological impact of moving into this phase that would be so dangerous uh, for the world to kind of cross that line. And once you cross that line, how do you ever go back Once uh, once you've been there?
0: All right. Thanks very much uh, for the questions and, and, and the answers. Um, we'll see if we have any, any more questions. We have time for one more, I think. I guess we can uh, wrap it up here. Uh, Ambassador Speckhardt, um, very fascinating. Um, and thanks very much for, for joining us.
1: It's been a pleasure. And I really appreciated uh, connecting with all your listeners. Have a great week.
0: All right. Thank you. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Daniel Speckhardt, who was the U.S. ambassador to Belarus in 1997 to 2000 and is now president and CEO of Chorus International, the global development and humanitarian assistance organization that's been involved with aid efforts in Ukraine since shortly after the start of Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022. And my name is steve gutterman editor for russia ukraine and belarus in the central newsroom at RFERL. as i mentioned this conversation will also be published as a podcast and you can subscribe to the week ahead in russia and other RFERL podcasts on apple spotify google or wherever you listen to podcasts uh, i'll be back next week for another edition of the week ahead in russia and please keep an eye out for the next edition of my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out almost every Friday. Thanks for your questions, and thank you for listening.